You're about to launch to Planet Joe. Please enter the pod and fasten the brain safety belt. This planet is intended for mature humans only. If you are the sapient type that gets offended easily, please exit the pod immediately. Enjoy your visit on Planet Joe Pod. Launching now. Hello, hello, my dear Earthlings. Welcome to Pod Pod 7. Have you been? How was your week? Hope all is good. So, yeah, welcome, Pod 7. Here we are. How have you been? That is the question. Let's start with that. How was I? Mm. Mine was rough. The whole week was. Uh, it was pretty rough. Um, August 20th was the uh, memorial, four years uh, since my sister's passing. So, I don't know, in the last four years, it's uh, a week before the memorial and after that. I'm just uh, crushed, as you can imagine. You know, going to the cemetery and, uh, and I was going to say dealing with the reality. I deal with it every day, but it's just facing it yeah so let me give you the heads up um this pod pod is uh is gonna be a downer we're gonna be talk about we're gonna be talking about um grieving loss of a loved one and uh i'll be talking about my experience of losing my twin sister I always say twin sister, even though we're not biological twins, but um, that's, I think I can describe how close we were in, in one word. So heads up, if you're in a good mood today and you're not up for a Debbie Downer podcast, hit that escape button and uh, you know, fly back to planet Earth, come back next week. And if you're curious about the whole uh, grieving the loss of a loved one subject or just curious about what uh, I'm going through. I'm going to share some personal stuff that I'm going through. So like I said, tough week for me. Um, I honestly don't know where to start and what to say. Saying it's tough, it's an understatement. Yeah, so it's been four years. Um, it feels like it was yesterday. Um the pain is still overwhelming. Uh, it's still very sad. It's definitely not only life-changing, but it changed my whole perspective on life. And if you lost someone close to you, you probably know what I'm talking about. I don't know. These are the times uh, since you passed that I uh, wished I was a believer, a higher being, or angels souls um that you know i will get to see her again at the afterlife but unfortunately um I'm, I'm an atheist i'm a realist and uh and i'm facing the fact that life is finite it just ends period and i gotta admit that makes it much harder than it is than you know believing and that's when i uh Again, many times find myself wishing that I would believe in those fairy tales. I mean, that's why we invented them, right? To make us feel better. Because reality 
can be harsh. And the funny thing, I don't know if it's funny, but the irony uh, is, it's something that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life, but the irony is that when my sister, when, when Gail took her last breath, uh, I wasn't by her side. I was at the synagogue praying. Yes, praying. It wasn't the first time that I prayed, you know, throughout the time that was by her side when she was in the hospital. You might ask yourself what an atheist like myself was doing praying. And to tell you the truth, at the time, I would believe in anything that uh, allegedly saved her, if that makes sense. I would worship uh, Satan, Thor, Superman. Pick one. I devote the rest of my life walking on my hands and speaking gibberish. Whatever it takes, that's where I was. And you know, now that I come to think of it, if my sister survived, there's a very good chance that I would be like a full-blown orthodox right now, like full believer. Because I remember when I was praying and crying and saying, if there is a God up there, if there is some force out there, If you save my sister, I will devote the rest of my life worshiping you, believing in you. And there are millions of human beings on this planet that that's what happened to them, and that's why they're religious. I have a big part of my family that are like that. Um, My cousin, my dad's brother, who's a rabbi. The main reason why they all became super religious, like full-blown orthodox is because one of his um, daughters was about to lose her eyesight. And I remember um, he wasn't an atheist at the time. I mean, there were believers, but not, you know, they didn't pay much attention to it. But they did pray. They brought some rabbis over to the hospital and whatnot. And and uh, lo and behold, her eyesight uh, returned. They said it was like a medical a miracle. And um, the rest is history. They all dove in. 100% became religious. So who knows, in my case, if my sister would have survived, if I wouldn't stick to my promise and flip from an atheist to a full-blown religious person. But yeah, I was, uh, at the time she was in the hospital, the atheist was praying. I was, uh, I was at the synagogue when she took her last breath. Crazy, I know, but... I don't know, it's maybe maybe subconsciously it adds to my anger towards the, those stupid rituals. Instead of holding her hand when she took her last breath, I was praying. Yeah, and then I got the call when I was at the synagogue. For some reason, as, as the phone rang, I, I, I already knew. I answered the phone crying already. It was my stepmom on the phone. She said, you got to come to the hospital. As I was crying, I asked, is she okay? Is something wrong? She just said, just come down. And I knew. I turned off the phone. I was crying. Uh, I was there with a few of my friends, and I told them, got to go to the hospital. <sighs> on the drive there, as I was crying, no one asked, is everything okay or what's wrong? It's like we all knew. That was that. 
the days after she passed, all I asked myself is why her and not me. She was a much better person than I will ever be. She was selfless. She was probably the most selfless person I've ever met. And I was and still is the more, more selfish type. The type that I always liked the, the comfort, the nice things in life. For Gail, it was always like that with her since I remember her nice things or comfort was always secondary. For her, it was the comfort and happiness of others, especially her family and the people who she loved. She always sacrificed so much for others, especially for me. I mean, when I'll never forget this when we were kids, eight, nine years old. I remember I wanted a bicycle. Me as being me, I wanted the most expensive and nicest bicycle in the store. And my sister being so selfless, I'll never forget this. She told my dad that she's willing to give up because he was going to buy us both a bicycle. She told him that she's willing to give up her bicycle so he can buy the expensive bicycle from me. Stuff like that. There are so many, so many moments like that. that uh... Okay, this is take 10 as I'm trying to share some memories with her but uh i can't i keep um, breaking down it's it's hard so i'll just try to, <clears throat> to run through them another thing for example her biggest passion in life was children mine was vaginas when we were kids when i beat her she used to cover for me you know the brother and sister always like play around and if it's beater or pincher or whatever my dad walked into the room and she was crying she always covered for me and said she fell or something like that or other times when i remember i kind of like begged her not to cry out loud so you know our parents won't hear her crying in the room if she was in pain or whatever she was holding up she was crying silently just so i won't get in trouble for beating her up that's gail we knew each other so well since our first memories as babies we knew how to comfort each other at the hardest times. She was a brutal, honest person. What I loved about her, if it's with her friends and specifically with me, she gave me shit when I deserved it or when I needed it. She was the calming presence in my life, the wise voice of reason. And uh, missing her, I don't think will ever fade. I don't think it will ever change. It's been four years and uh, it's still still really hard. <clears throat> the first year um, after she passed, the pain was so overwhelming. Actually, the first couple of months after she passed, I, uh, I was in a real dark place where the meaning of life has lost all of its meaning. And uh, yeah, I had some really bad and dangerous thoughts and and what helped me go through that first year, year and a half after she passed is uh, science, <laughs> antidepressants. I'm, I'm sure it saved my life. It numbed everything. It helped me go through that period of the fresh wound. If you're familiar with loss, if you lost someone, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But also, <sighs> I want to talk about the differences of bereavements. Like losing a parent, losing a child, losing a sibling. They're all losses, but they're different. 
one thing that's very confusing to me when it comes to grief is the fact that I lost my sister 10 months after I lost my mother. And all of my life, I was a mama's boy. I was very, very close with my mother. She was also my best friend. And what added to the confusion and the pain is that my sister's passing, it kind of shadowed the grief of my mother's loss. And to this day, it's like that. And I don't know if you know the, the four stages of, of grieving, people who someone close are going through. Um, for those of you who don't know, they say there are uh, five stages of grief. Let me real quick read to you um, off of uh, WebMD.com. What are the, those five stages of grief? Uh, the first one is denial. When you first learn of a loss, it's normal to think this isn't happening. You may feel shocked or numb. This is a temporary way of, uh, to deal with the rush of overwhelming emotion. It's a defense mechanism. And it's true. It's like the denial of uh, this isn't this isn't happening. This is like a nightmare that I'm supposed to wake up any minute and realize that it's just a bad dream. But time goes on and you realize that it's not. The second phase is anger. As reality sets in, you're faced with the pain of your loss. You may feel frustrated and helpless. These feelings later turn into anger. You might direct it toward other people, a higher power, or life in general. To be angry with a loved one who died and left you alone is natural too. I never felt that that type of anger towards Gail, that she left me alone, but I'll never forget this. Uh, once I heard it from my dad as he was weeping, he was angry. How could she leave him? But the rest is very true for me. It's anger towards uh, the doctors who couldn't save her. Anger towards other people, not as much. Anger towards a higher power, um, mm, not so much because I don't believe in higher power. Just like being angry at Santa Claus. But to me, the anger was a little bit towards the doctors, but mostly, like it says over here, um, towards the life in general. And it's something that, that is still burning in me. Anger towards life in general. The third stage of grief is bargaining. During this stage, you dwell on what you could have done to prevent the loss. Common thoughts are only and what if. You may also try to strike a deal with a higher power. Again, the deal with a higher power. Um, I tried when she was in the hospital, even though I didn't believe in, in higher power, but I did try it. And like I said, I would try anything. I don't know if someone from a weird religion would come up to me and say, you know, if you pray to my God, he will save my, my sister. I would do that. Like I said, I would freaking pray for anyone. Satan, Thor, whatever, whatever it takes, I would do it. So I prayed for the Jewish God since, you know, we're Jewish and we're in Israel. But anyways, if only and what ifs, yes, I went through that phase for sure. I think the biggest one is... Uh, if only I could fly her to the States, I think that would have been able to save her. To this day, I kind of think that, that if she was hospitalized in the U.S. In reality, I know that that's probably not the case. Anyways, the fourth stage is depression. Sadness sets in as you begin to understand the loss and its effect on your life. Signs of depression include crying, sleep issues, and a decreased appetite. You may feel overwhelmed, regretful, and lonely. That's definitely something that uh, 
I'm probably still going through. And like I said, when I was on antidepressants, it helped to numb the pain. I did sleep better, kind of um, functioning. I could go back to work, but um, I got off of it because it was too numbing. I really felt like a robot with no emotions. It numbs your pain, but it also numbs everything else. And the last uh, stage of grief is acceptance. In this final stage of grief, you accept the reality of your loss. It can't be changed. Although you still feel sad, you're able to start moving forward with your life. Where I'm at with this, I don't know, probably in between depression and acceptance four years after. But sometimes I feel that this is the status quo for the rest of my life. But who knows? Like I said, a big part of it is because I'm not at home. I'm stuck in Israel, far away from home, in an environment where it's not my environment. And honestly, many times I think to myself, once I get back home, I'll probably just then I'll start the grieving process. But who knows? Who knows what lies ahead? But one thing I do know is that, you know, since she passed, nihilism crept in and made started making more sense to me. I feel more and more of a nihilist. For those of you who don't know what nihilism is, as of philosophical position nihilism involves denying certain existence claims two prominent forms of nihilism are existential nihilism which rejects claims that human life is meaningful and moral nihilism which rejects claims that human actions can be right or wrong and i probably became an existential nihilist nihilism in the dictionary is the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless And over time, since my sister passed, I feel more and more of a nihilist, that life is meaningless. You know, I'm starting to fear that it's not just because of where I'm at, Israel, but my perspective on life has twisted. You know, we go through the journey of life, we survive, hurt, celebrate, cross hills of pain and valleys of laughter, raise children, seek love and companionship, work, rush through glimpses of vacation and tip our toes in relaxing briefly when we can. We are occupying ourselves with things that really mean nothing, like sports, entertainment, money, things, appearance, politics, and weird beliefs like a certain god, depending where you were born. Astrology, made-up spirituality, we made up spirits, souls, energy, and anything that will distract us from the harsh reality that it all has no meaning. I mean, in 100 years, everything that we are will be forgotten, gone, evaporated. That's the reality. How many of us think about the people that lived 100 years ago, even our grand-grandparents? I doubt anyone does. The struggles that they went through, the, the pain that they went through, the celebrations, whatever they believed in, it's, it's all gone, 100 years, and it's evaporated, just like my sister did. I don't know, to me, that's, that's reality, that really everything is meaningless. And I'm not the only one. There are many people who are uh, nihilists, because, specifically because of a loss of someone close so I want to read you an article of, uh, of a wonderful writer who became a nihilist because of, of the loss. And he describes it poetically, if you will, describes it very well. I read this article a few times and uh, I dug it out for you. I haven't read it in a while, though, but uh, let me read it for you. It's called 
A theology of grief, where divine mercy and benevolence fail. Suspension of disbelief does not. You can find it on uh, medium.com. If you just type in a theology of grief, I'm sure you'll run into the article. Let's go ahead. Let me read it for you. This Christmas was the first one my kids and I spent without their mother, my wife, Amy Josephine Reed. She died from complication related to the spread and upstaging of an aggressive cancer last May. Coping daily with the brutal finality of her raw and physical death is the hardest thing I've had to do in my life. It's astronomically harder during this festive time of the year. In this Christmas season, as in all Christmases past, there's a lot of talk about believing. Believe, read festive signs all around us. Joy, read others. The call is to believe in God who loves us, sees us, guides us, protects us, and intervenes on our behalf with mercy and justice. In a world of uncertainty and rancor, the big guy is in charge, so don't worry, have faith, they say. But when you are touched by raw tragedy, by senseless loss, by youth destroyed, by potential dissipated, by heartless human travesty, it's not so easy to sit back and just believe in anything, much less an interventionalist, benevolent and merciful God unseen. When the brutal emptiness of life becomes 100% clear, when the death of your beloved tears your bones apart, it's not so easy just to believe. No matter how fancy and well-decorated a church altar, the believe menu is being served on. Add to that a life spent in scientific, intellectual, and logical pursuits, and the kind of rote and passive belief many faithful promote in the face of senseless injustice, brings the whole idea of believing to a profound low. The benevolent and merciful quote-unquote God, who intervenes personally on our behalf, starts to look like a flimsy man-made idol designed to sugarcoat shit. I know I'm not alone in this, and maybe I'm in good company. In the Bible, Job is said to have lost everything, but the Bible says that he kept on believing, and so God restored him. I guess that's why he ends up being a character of biblical proportion. And I never will, because in the face of Amy's death, I do not have Job's faith in merciful but benevolence. The truth is that the manner and timing of Amy's death has not only caused me to question my faith in the idea of a merciful and benevolent God who looks after us personally, it's caused me to lose faith in our medical institutions and leaders and in the whole ethically unhinged utilitarian construct on which our society is being operated. And this loss of faith is no trivial matter. I assure that it's been well thought out and analyzed. Those who know how and why Amy died, and what man-made monster she fought, will know what I mean. So it's fair to say that, at the moment, the only thing I have full faith in are my own choices, actions, and willpower when it comes to life's curveballs and uncertainties. I know many supposedly quote-unquote faithful people will frown at my statements and maybe even judge them harshly as being weak, a reflection of grief, maybe even blasphemous. But most of these people likely have the luxury of at least one degree of separation from the profundity of and direct palatable connectivity to Amy's loss. I suppose it's possible for such people to just believe in the face of others' tragedies when there is one or more degrees of separation from those who tragic fates they bear witness to. It's easy to feel sorry for other folks when you see them suffer or die prematurely or unjustly. 
but you have the luxury of moving on and creating space between yourself and the ugly stench of death. It's easy to pray, to quote-unquote believe, and to ask the good Lord to protect your family from similar tragedy when you're not on the receiving end. It's easy to get dressed nicely and go to church when all is good. Maybe it's even easier for people who've never questioned the existence of nature of God as a matter of family upbringing and culture to just go through the motions one Sunday after another with no real questions asked. The big guy's in charge. It's that simple. But when raw death comes under your own roof, when you look at it squarely in the eyes and smell its putrid breath, when you helplessly watch it slowly devour the one you love, when the dark one rams into your inner sanctum and burns it to the ground, no matter how heavily fortified you thought it was, when all you're left with is a kaleidoscope of pictures, smiles, and memories, it becomes clear that it's not so easy as it sounds at parochial Sunday Masses to believe in the benevolent and merciful God who is looking after you personally. How could a benevolent God do such violence to beauty? What kind of a God takes strength, dignity, and astonishing accomplishment and desecrates it in this dirty world filled with ugly and miserable souls? What benevolent God forsakes people who do their best to live lives of service and hard work in this world and whose lives are nothing short of miracles? It's very easy to come to the conclusion that we have it all wrong with the benevolent God stuff. It's profoundly simple to come to the conclusion that the God stuff is all made up to sugarcoat the heartless and clinical precision with which death desecrates beauty senselessly. I suppose the driving force behind such a theology of sugarcoating goes something like this. If you can't kill death, then sugarcoat it, with all means possible, because life has to go on. You see, I am no Job, and I certainly cannot sugarcoat and whitewash Amy's death by saying to myself, have faith, move on, there's a reason for it all. There was and is no reason for Amy's death. There is no purpose other than the one that those who love her might be able to create. Actively, not through passive, sugar-coated, anemic, quote-unquote, faith in a made-up construct designed to pacify the simple-minded about the brutality of life. But here, I am left with the emptiness of knowing that there may be no eternal life outside of ourselves. If there is no God looking out for us, if we only live to then die our raw and physical deaths, what is the meaning of life on this earth? Do we simply come here to live, eat, sleep, entertain ourselves, procreate, work, and then die? Only to be forgotten in a few short years or decades, no matter what we do and how we do it? I also know that I'm not alone in being gripped by these facts about injustice and cruelty of life. But going down the easy default path of anger and divine betrayal and stopping there leads to no hope, no meaning, no future. It satisfies one finality, and that is death itself. And I reject death in the name of Amy. At the same time, my young and beautiful wife's suffering makes it very hard for me to simply believe as a passive cognitive exercise in this greater benevolent being outside of ourselves who intervenes on our behalf personally. I reject the idea, irreversibly, that he intervenes on our behalf personally and outside of our own choices and actions. I see it as a spiritually primitive human cognitive error to think otherwise. In all of this, those who are selling the easy, passive, ritualistic brand of faith, those who do not fully grasp the critical role of our active choices and actions in the evolution of faith and purpose, they are doing the devil's work in our world. 
Theirs is not the house of God, be it in ornate churches, synagogues, mosques, or in organized displays of mercy for destitute. So as I search for Job in my own heart and spirit, in the aftermath of Amy's loss, I ask myself, is it possible for human beings to vanquish death? It's an interesting article about a person who lost someone he loves. Um, I gotta tell you, reading about loss did help me a lot. I read many books about loss and uh, grief. And one book in particular that really touched me and really helped me is called um, Surviving the Death of a Sibling, Living Through Grief When an Adult Brother or Sister Dies. This book is specifically about losing a sibling. Oddly enough, that's the only book that's specific about the loss of a sibling. There aren't any other books, believe it or not, about this specifically. The author is T.J. Ray, T-J-W-R-A-Y. She talks about losing a sibling, and she also went out and interviewed a whole bunch of people who lost siblings. <clears throat> this book had a, a huge impact on me. Um, there's something about it when, when you hear other humans who describe what you're going through to the T. I don't know what it is in our human nature, but there is some comfort in it. I guess it's, it's our tribalism. There's something comforting in that. Because after losing my sister, I really felt that no one understands what I'm going through. And that includes even my father. You know, he lost his, his daughter. You know, I can't imagine the pain that he's going through. But still, it's, it's different. I'm sure it's different for a parent to lose a child. It's a different type of grief from a person losing a sibling. So I want to read a few uh, highlights from that book and then just add my thoughts about each um, paragraph. It's, it's also a way for me to share with you what I've been going through and still am going through. And it might also educate you of how to deal with a friend or a family member who lost someone. This is actually, as depressing as it is, it can't be educational. So let me read the highlights from that book. Lori, age 31, was the only person I could tell anything to. She was my best friend. Every time something good or something bad happened... I would pick up the phone and tell her, I can't do that anymore. I still feel very alone, like a part of me died and will never return. Word for word, I mean, to this day, sometimes I have moments for a split of a second that I want to pick up the phone and call Gail and share with her if it's bad news or good news. And like she said, she feels very alone, like a part of her died and will never return. And that's... Um, that's exactly what I feel. That's exactly what anyone who loses a sibling feels. Next highlight. I joined a grief support group. Didn't think it helped much, except it was a place that allowed me to talk about Gail, age 40. I didn't want to keep bothering my friends and family, although they tried to be supportive. Yeah, I, I was in a grief support group when my mom passed and before I came to Israel. Uh, surprisingly, it did help a little. I didn't think it would. And the one who pushed me and encouraged me to do it was uh, my sister, Gail. Because even though we were on the phone for hours on end, after the, uh, my mom passed, my sister was in Israel, and my mom passed in Israel, and that was in the States. My sister um, kept saying how she regrets that, she, that we're not next to each other, and she pushed me and encouraged me to go to a, a grief support group. And after losing my sister, 
I was looking for grief support groups here in Israel, but uh, unsurprisingly, there is no such thing. There are a few, mostly for uh, parents who lost uh, their children uh, in the military or veterans and whatnot. Okay, let's read another highlight. The sibling relationship is more complex than nearly any other. A mixture of affection and an ambivalence, camaraderie and competition. Aside from your parents, there is simply no one else on earth who knows you better. Because like your parents, your brothers and sisters have been besides you from the very beginning. Unlike your parents, however, your siblings are people you assume will be a part of your life for the rest of your life too. In terms of the span of time, the intimacy, and the shared experience of childhood, no other relationship rivals the connection we have with our adult brothers or sisters. From schoolyard bullies to teenage broken hearts, from careers to marriage to dreams unfulfilled, Our siblings have been there through it all, life partners in our journey through time. They are the keepers of secrets, perennial rivals for our parents' affections, and they secure and familiar constant in an often precarious and uncertain world. Losing a sibling, then, can also mean losing a part of yourself, part of that special connection to the past. How do we learn to live with the broken circle that is now our family? If, on the other hand, you're denied a chance to be with your dying brother or sister, for whatever reason, then you'll probably have a much more difficult time when you learn of his, of his or her death. You are likely to feel, as I do, that you missed the opportunity be, to be with your sibling as he or she left this world, and you'll probably suffer a great deal of sadness and regret because of it. My world has suddenly turned into some weird alien place, and I felt very uncomfortable just living as if life were some strange, bad movie with an inexplicable ending. Learning your brother or sister has died often conjures frightening and upsetting thoughts and images. Thinking about your brother's or sister's last moments, images of his or her dead body, and many other disturbing mental pictures emerge in your waking thoughts and often disturb your sleep. For obvious reasons, this is an aspect of early grief rarely discussed by surviving siblings. There were times when I simply forgot he was gone. I'd go to the phone to share a story or a problem with him, and then a squeeze of a shock, suddenly fresh and painful all over again, would remind me he wasn't here anymore. Since the most common complaint among surviving siblings has to do with insensitive remarks, let's begin with what not to say to a bereaved sibling, or any grieving person for that matter. Topping the list of things to avoid saying are such well-worn expressions as he's in a better place and at least he's not suffering anymore. Along the same lines, I recall several people urging me to cheer up. Your brother wouldn't want you to feel sad. Oh God, this is, this hits home. Um, you know, at least she's not suffering anymore or cheer up. She wouldn't want you to be sad. Yeah, those are the ones that I hear a lot. The hardest one that I heard was from a very close family member. I'm not going to say names, but it was only like, I think, months after she passed. With a very stone face, he looked at me and said, life goes on, you got to keep moving, or something along those lines. I remember how frustrated I was when I heard that. And I was like, my first thought was like, yeah, come talk to me when you lose your sister. I know it's awful, but and I know the intentions are good from friends and family when they say those things, but it actually, it comes across as insensitive. 
And the first time that I ever heard that, that it comes across as insensitive remarks, it's um, when I read that book. It's very weird, but that's what's comforting a little bit. When you read people who go through what you're going through and they understand the level of pain and they understand things that I myself didn't understand. I didn't understand why I see it as insensitive when a person is trying, you know, to be comforting or to be good or to be close. Okay, let's read a few more. I hated people telling me that she was in a better place. The other comment I often heard and irked the daylights out of me was she would want you to carry on with your life or your sister wouldn't want you to be miserable. Yeah, like that's supposed to suddenly transform my grief into a bright, sunshiny day. And yeah, that's pretty much what I was talking about. She said the sentence exactly. Your sister wouldn't want you to be miserable. It doesn't comfort. Let's put it this way. Okay, next paragraph. Most people in my dealings have been the let me know what I can do variety, not the I am doing this. I needed the latter. I also had the bad luck of not having anyone who would just let me ramble on about Tommy, age 36, our childhood and other things. People just wanted to say they were sorry, give me a hug and then change the subject. And that's so true. Um, Since that enormous loss and to this day, people are uncomfortable talking about Gail. Very uncomfortable. They can say they're sorry, big loss or whatnot, and then they change the subject. They feel uncomfortable. And I'm assuming that they feel if they do talk about it, they would make me uncomfortable. And it's quite the opposite. I don't think I ever had a con- like a long conversation with anyone about Gail since she passed. Anyone, even, even my father. Well, my father, I do understand because when we do mention her, we both break down. <clears throat> But even then, I think there's something healing about remembering and talking about her or anyone who loses someone. So, yeah, if you're talking to someone who lost someone close, it's quite the opposite of what you feel that you shouldn't be talking about it or asking questions. I don't know. For me, maybe once or twice I sat across someone who asked me questions about her, even though in between the questions they were apologizing and kept saying, if you want to want to talk about it, that's fine. But I do have to admit that I was on the other side. A really close friend of mine lost his mother. We were in our mid-twenties. And I remember I didn't even mention his mother. I didn't even feel comfortable talking about it. I, I felt like I didn't want to put him in that situation or bring back memories. Or that's how I saw it. But, you know, now I know that these memories are are me. They're part of me. They're, there isn't an hour that goes by that... I don't think about her. So I totally understand. And I could probably remember a few more times that I, you know, gave my condolence, gave my condolences to someone. And I felt the more I talk about it, the more I'll make that person feel uncomfortable. And now I know it's the wrong point of view. It's the wrong approach. It's quite the opposite. You know, I think it's best to ask the person if they want to talk about it and then let loose and ask all the questions and, and let that person commemorate their loved one. And share memories of that person that they lost. Okay, let's read a few more. Story topping is usually intended as a way to commiserate with the bereaved. To try to let the grieving person know you've been there. Yet story topping usually has the opposite effect. Unless you've lost a sibling under similar circumstances, it's best to avoid comparing your loss to others, thus making their loss really about you. My biggest problem with other people's reactions was when they would say things like, Oh, I know just how you feel. My grandfather died just last month. 
I mean, excuse me, but your grandfather had a long life, and it was probably his time to die. My sister, on the other hand, was only 40. She had a successful law practice with a partner. She was married with a five-year-old child. None of her friends had died. She was not an old woman with little left to look forward to. How could they equate an elderly man's death with hers? Additionally, the feelings I had for my sister were extremely close. She was my best friend and my surrogate mother. It is insensitive for anyone to think that losing a grandparent is exactly like my experience. I just feel that people do not realize the effect of a sibling's death has on a sibling left behind. That's a huge one, and I hear that more than once. You know, I lost my parent, or I lost my grandparent, and um, that hits home because for me, it's like, how can you compare an older person? And to me personally saying that you went through the same thing when you lost a grandparent, when they had a long life, to my sister who died when she was uh, a couple months before her 40th birthday, it's, uh, it does the opposite of comforting. Okay, let's read some more. If someone advises you behave in a certain way during your bereavement, suggesting, for example, that you really ought to find a new hobby to take your mind off things, you might respond, thank you for your concern, but that's really not helpful. By being politely assertive, you not only help to curtail such remarks, but you can gain some measures of power during a time when you're probably feeling pretty powerless. You might even succeed in educating a few people. And I hope that's what I'm doing here. Educating you how to approach and talk and deal with people who lost uh, someone close, specifically a sibling. And that's what I said in the beginning. It's a whole different level of loss and pain. And that's something that I still didn't feel comfortable saying to someone. You know, over here, the author says, um, by being politely assertive, you not only help to curtail such remarks, but you can gain some measure of power during the time when you're probably feeling pretty powerless. It's true, but, but I don't feel I can say that. Thank you for your concern, but that's really not helpful. I think that's a little rude for someone whose uh, intentions are good. But that's why I just always show my appreciation for their good intentions, even though when many times, more often than not, it does the opposite than comforting. Don't try to come up with a theological reason for an untimely death. Trust me, there aren't any. One of my friends gave me much help by being wise and kind enough to just being there for me, without trying to tell me how I should feel or act. When my brother died, a friend of his called and said simply, This really sucks. Your brother didn't deserve this, and neither do you. That was the most genuine expression of sympathy I received. Often it's the small expressions of sympathy that comfort the most. That's another true one, and I think I heard it maybe once or twice since I lost my sister. A simple expression that it fucking sucks. That your sister died like that. Life sucks, and life is not fair. I don't know, those remarks hit home more than anything. The grief is bigger than me now. It lingers around every corner like a bully waiting to pounce. I feel trapped, confused, and afraid. I keep expecting someone to come to the rescue, to drop from the sky in a red cape and scare off the bully. But no one seems to notice my trembling. That's another remark that hits home. And it's a interesting way to describe the the pain that usually jumps out of nowhere as a bully um and it's so true many times so many times throughout the day when it when it hits me like a punch into the chest and no one seems to notice 
And what's more confusing, every time I felt anything close or similar, it was Gail that would always come to the rescue and comfort and make me feel better. Many times just by hearing her voice, I already felt better. Another quote from the book, A flutter of grief rising in my chest. How can life go on without you? <sighs> but now we know <clears throat> But now we know it's real. Sometimes this reality is so painful that we can't talk about it, even with those we love. There are no words, after all, that can express the enormity of our loss. Others, of course, may misinterpret our silence as evidence that we're moving forward, when the opposite is probably the case. In fact, one of the most ironic twists in the grief journey is likely to occur at this juncture. That is, the full impact of our brother's or sister's death began to seep into our consciousness at precisely the same time when others might expect us to be feeling better. Hence, you'll probably begin to notice a gradual withdrawal of support just when you need it the most. I've got nothing to, to add to that. Um, and it's true, many people think that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's about that time that we feel better and we're starting to move on, but it's far from the truth. <clears throat> okay, let's read on. We form attachments with our brothers and sisters early in life, and these attachments generally grow deeper with age. The older you are when your sibling dies, the deeper your attachment. Surviving siblings search for their deceased brothers and sisters in all kinds of places. For example, if your sibling suffered a prolonged illness and you fell into the rhythm of the hospital routine, you may find yourself going out of your way just to drive past the hospital one more time. And that is very true. Sometimes when I, it's in the car or on the bus, I pass through the hospital. Many times I pass by the hospital, I think I could just get off here and go up there and visit her. They've extended their sympathies, but now it's time to move on. They have no idea that the real pain of my loss has only just begun. These are quotes. I mentioned it before, but I'm just reminding you that these are quotes from different people who lost different siblings. Um, even though there's a whole, there's like one or two pages of each person that, that the author interviewed. So these are just highlights of things that they said that, uh, that describe pretty much what I feel. And some of those people that she interviewed, they're in their 50s, 70s, 80s, some of them. And they even lost a sibling when they were younger, like in their 20s. And they talk about that they still, even though they live, learned how to live with this pain, but the pain is still grand many, many years after. Okay, let's read another one. I turn down lunch and dinner invitations from friends and feel almost annoyed when they think to include me in their parties or other cele celebrations. Can't they see I've changed? I'm not the person I was several weeks ago. Their phone calls and social gatherings seems trivial and specious. All I really want is to be left alone. Yeah, another one that hits home. Um, you know, months after I lost my sister, my friends, you know, called, invited me gatherings, parties. They actually managed to drag me out to, to go out a couple of times. I remember in one of those situations, we went out to a nightclub. I don't even know how I managed to go out to a nightclub, but peer pressure, I guess. And I also kind of, and I also wanted to escape that, that pain in every way I could. Plus, I was on antidepressants. 
But I did it. I went out to a nightclub. And my God, it was terrible. Because me and Gail, we always used to, we loved clubbing. She was always there when we went out with friends. Actually, even when the friends wanted to move on or go to a different place, it was always me and Gail that we liked the same DJs or the same, you know, vibe. Many times we were like, oh, you guys, you guys go on. We'll st- we're staying. But anyways, walking into a nightclub was devastating. I started crying like a five-year-old girl. Uh, I walked out, got in the cab and went home. Yeah, they called an hour after. I even forgot to tell them that I'm leaving. And eventually, I pushed all of my friends away. I mean, they were always around. There was, they were always coming over. But um, yeah, I admit it. It was intentional. And like uh, this paragraph is ended by this person's quote, all I really want is to be left alone. That's where I was. Actually, that's where I'm still at. Hopefully, it'll change once I get home. Hopefully, hopefully. Psyche will change. Who knows? Here's another one. I did feel very isolated from others because I felt so different from anyone I knew. I didn't really want to go out and do things with friends because that seemed too normal and I felt anything but normal. I felt like I was all of a sudden a different person, but no one would know it because I looked the same. That's a very isolating feeling, knowing that you're not who everyone else assumes you to be. As sympathetic as they were, I knew they really had no idea what an impact this had on my life. That's another beautiful description, and it mirrors exactly what I went through. It's pretty much, you know, what I said. Your friends uh, don't realize that you're a different person. They don't realize the impact that this loss had on, on my life. And that's also something that was hard to cope with. But, you know, after reading this book, I realized that, Yes, I am a different person. I'm not the person that, uh, you know, my friends knew before I lost my sister. And uh, she describes it perfectly when she says, as sympathetic as they were, I knew they really had no idea what an impact this had on my life. All I could say, my friends were super sympathetic and and loving and supportive, but none of them realized. Um, It's not only friends, also family members. None of them realized the impact that this had on my life and uh i guess that's why it's comfortable also being left alone because you don't feel that you have to explain yourself or you don't have to force smiles on your face which is exhausting forcing one smile when you're crushed inside is exhausting okay here's another one solitude can be understood on three basic levels physical, emotional, and spiritual. The physical need for solitude, perhaps the most common, is characterized primarily by social withdrawal. Surviving siblings seek a quiet place away from others, a place where they are free to reflect, cry, and grieve in their own unique way. Here's another quote from a surviving sibling. But how can I learn to live in a world that doesn't include my brother? All my life, I've always been my brother's sister. It's part of my identity, part of who I am. My brother is part of my past. We share common history. And we had plans for the future. I must therefore shift my perspective and change many goals in order to assimilate his loss into my life. Needless to say, this is an emotionally painful process because it feels as if 
I'm weeding him out of my life, which only compounds my grief. Yes, very true. I mean, there wasn't anything that my sister wasn't a part of my life. There, was, there wasn't anything that she did not know about me. Nothing. And every decision I made, it was always discussed with her. And all of a sudden, doing those things without her in my life, it does feel kind of like weeding her out from my life. That's a great description by this person who lost her brother. I don't know if it sounds weird or it makes sense to people who didn't lose a sibling. But anyways, a few more paragraphs, one more article, and we'll wrap it up. Here's another quote uh, from a surviving sibling. There are many photographs of my brother in the box. However, I can't bear to look at those yet. <sighs> this is a big one for me. It's still hard for me to look at photos of Gail. The pain is, is way too overwhelming. And it's a double-edged sword because it does feel like you're ignoring what you had with that amazing person. And on the other hand, I can't bear to look at those photos because the pain is so overwhelming. To this day, four years after, it's so difficult for me to look at photos of Gail. It's too hard. Way too hard. It was difficult to be around normal, non-grieving people. Their lives seemed so placid and pain-free. I decided to take a seven-month leave of absence from work and try to relax, travel a bit, and recover. I guess the solitude was useful in that I didn't have to put on a happy face when I wasn't feeling that way. That's what I was talking about, you know, putting on a happy face. That's uh, the advantage of just being alone. Ask anyone who has lost a brother or a sister and they'll tell you, I'm not who I used to be. Every loss changes us. You'll never be the person you were before your brother or sister died. Once you accept this, you can let go of the fantasy that things will eventually return the, to the way they used to be and get on with the hard work of finding meaning in your loss and then integrating it into your life. This does not mean that the loss of our grandparents and parents is any easier, only that losing our grandparents and parents is to be expected. But our brothers and sisters are supposed to help us cope with the eventual loss of our parents, grandparents, and other elder relatives. Our brothers and sisters are not supposed to die until we've had a chance to grow old with them. It's the natural order of life. We will eventually have to endure the pain of our parents' death without the special support only siblings can provide. I got nothing to add to that. Anyway, guys... I was going to read another article, but I don't know if you picked up on it. I had to take breaks and come back. It's uh, difficult. <clears throat> it's difficult talking about. Um, but I'm glad you sat through this whole time and listened to me blabber about it. Hopefully you learned something, I guess, how to talk to someone who lost someone. And if you did lose someone close to you, I empathize and I understand. And if you lost a sibling, oh boy, do I understand and I'm sorry. And for the rest of you who have brothers and sisters, every day tell them that you love them. Every day show your appreciation and love to your sibling. That's all I got to say, my peeps. And go and cry some more. 
See you next week. Love you. Peace out. Thank you.